Well, Father, we are so thankful to be here today, and we uh, thank you for the assembly of the saints that we can come together and celebrate a feast after this, but before that, a feast in your word. Father, your word is precious to us as it records the, the sacred sayings of our Savior, who wants to lead us into all righteousness, and what we are about to read is something designed to do just that. And so I pray that we will sit back and, and anticipate and consider uh, the words of the Savior for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, according to a market analyst, baby boomers and the silent generation, that's the generation preceding the baby boomers, will pass down $84.4 trillion in assets through 2045. And $72.6 trillion will go directly to their heirs. Right, that's a lot of money. In fact, the Bank Administration Institute says it will end up as the greatest wealth transfer in history. Now, knowing this, many people size up their parents or their grandparents' estates. They do the math and they anticipate what riches are in store for them. In fact, it's become very common for this younger generation that will benefit from this inheritance to minimally save up for retirement. In fact, some of them have insufficient funds for retirement. So they have an expectation of an inheritance. They have minimal retirement savings. And then mom and dad pass away. And what do you think happens? It's a tinderbox. One comedian said, you know what they say, where there's a will, there's a family fighting over it. Right? With the presence of, of found money, there's all kinds of conflict as you want to get what is mine. Right? Now, in Luke 12, we see a certain man trying to get Jesus to weigh in on an inheritance conflict. In verse 13... Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there will I store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, previously, Jesus just spoke on persecution, the need to stand firm for your faith, the willingness to, to suffer and die for Jesus. 
I'm sure many of you here might have a martyr fantasy where some Muslim extremist holds you hostage, points a gun to your head, and says, confess your allegiance to Allah or die. And you say, pull the trigger. I'm with Jesus. Right? Many of you are willing to hypothetically follow Jesus if it cost you your life. However, would you follow Jesus if it cost you your money? <laughs> now, this is a touchy subject because I think all of us, we, we love hearing messages on God's love, God's comfort, encouraging messages, messages about the kingdom, uh, perhaps a, a good message on theology, maybe something that really convicts you to personal holiness. But whenever the topic of money comes up, there might be a tendency to go, oh boy, because you know what the application's going to be? Pastor Dave's going to ask us to give more money. Now, if that is you, <laughs> I want to ask you this question. Is it your money? See, this is the issue with money. And this is the issue with covetousness. This is the issue why people fight over their family inheritance. It's, it's, it's one one-syllable word, mine. That word mine is like the second word that kids learn after no. You go to the nursery and you see covetousness in action, right? One kid plays with an action figure, puts it down, walks away bored. Another kid picks up the same action figure. First kid comes back, and it's mine. We all have an instinct for what is mine, and you are not to take what is mine from me. And so here you have this man who wants Jesus to weigh in on a family dispute. My brother has stolen my inheritance from me. Tell my brother to give me my share. And Jesus doesn't say, <clears throat> well, why don't you give me the last will and testament and we'll see who has what share. He goes after the heart of the issue that causes this man to ask that question, why do you say it's mine? See, that's just another term for covetousness. It's a desire for what belongs to you. And what is the solution to this? It's to really move from seeing it as mine to seeing it as yours with a capital Y. We don't own anything. We are not entitled to anything. The problem with covetousness is it's a me-centered sin that leads to relational disruption, not only uh, with God, but with other people as we see here. So what is the cure for covetousness? Well, as we move through this text, we're going to see three cures. One, beware of the temptation towards covetousness. Perceive the foolishness of covetousness. And embrace the solution or the cure to covetousness. And the cure is moving from a, a me, mind-centered outlook on your money to a you and yours outlook-centered outlook on your money. So let's look at the first point. Beware of the temptation towards covetousness. Verse 13. <clears throat> Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, Jesus is encompassed by a swelling crowd. People would limp miles to Jesus so that he might heal their lame leg. Uh, Parents might take their their demon-possessed children in desperation, hope that Jesus can facilitate a miracle. The blind and the deaf would go to Jesus for the gift of sight and sound. You have all these desperate people looking for some sort of healing, and we have another desperate man here. Teacher, he finally has an audience with Jesus, right? And how does he use this audience? Can he heal my sick mother-in-law? Can he give sight to my blind child? Nope. Tell my brother to defy the inheritance with me. That's what you're coming to Jesus with? Now, in that day and age, the older brother had control over the inheritance. The inheritance could not be divided unless the, whole, unless the, uh, the older brother deems so. And so this man maybe got no inheritance or a smaller inheritance than what he felt entitled to. And so what he is after is a form of justice. Jesus is not about the money. It's about justice. I'm, I am concerned for my brother that he is stealing from me, which is just incidental to the concern. Right? And this version of justice often overestimates what's due to you and underestimates what's due to somebody else, Right? It is singed by covetousness. And you see this in family disputes all the time. How, are, how should mom and dad divide up the family inheritance? Well, I believe it should be divided equally among all parties. Well, it shouldn't be equal. My sister is rich. She doesn't need any more. You know what? I was there for dad when you were five states away. Remember that new car that your mom bought you? I never had got a car like that. Well, the reason why there's so much money to divide is because I was the one who took over the farm and made it grow. I want justice. I want what's mine. Jesus, give me what is mine. And how does Jesus respond to this? But he said to him, Beloved, who may, wait, does it say that? Man. This is an expression of some displeasure on Jesus' part. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? See, Jesus did not come uh, to bring property to men, but men to God. This is not my agenda. It's to solidify a family divorce. You've got bigger issues, man. Verse 15, and he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He comes to Jesus with the great concern of his life. It's not the welfare of his soul. It's not the needs of his family. It's his need. And Jesus sets the record straight. Your life, what matters in your life is not how much money you have. It's not this this nest egg. It's not this abundance of your possessions. You have one encounter with Jesus, and this is what you ask. He is so focused on this. 
And this is a relatable concern, isn't it? Because often there is a latent fear in all of us, in all of you, that one day you won't have enough money. You might have got your property tax bill this week, and I thought, what just happened? Inflation is melting away your money. The stock market is, is underperforming. I might live much longer than my financial advisor says I will live. I need a surplus. I need an abundance. Now, just so you know, financial planning is a good thing. It's good to have some money saved up so you can live off of the interest. But there is a danger with a surplus and a nest egg mentality. For instance, at my old church, I was on the missions committee, and we had a very large missions budget. We had our own budget that was separate from the rest of the church's budget. We had $350,000 in that budget, and this was 20 years ago. And I noticed something really interesting. If we were in the red for two months, there was panic because we would touch the nest egg. There was like this unwritten rule that the nest egg was only allowed to grow. And how much money we needed? Well, enough to protect the nest egg. And that could be true of us, right? Where you have this sacred nest egg that cannot be imposed upon. You must keep it, and you believe that your future is dependent on the abundance of possessions. So, again, this is one of those sins where covetousness is really easy to see in other people, isn't it? You guys know a covetous person? Oh, yeah. But I'm not here preaching to other people. I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. So here's some questions. For you to consider. Do your thoughts focus on wealth or the Lord? When you daydream, what do you daydream about? Boy, that's a nice Jeep. Look at the discs in that disc golf bag. Boy, those are good seats. Do you ever compromise to get more for yourself? Maybe over-report expenses, under-report your income, fudge some Facts to make a sale. Do you enjoy material things more than than God? How do you respond when your wealth is diminished? Does a downturn in the stock market sour your mood? Or are you unusually happy when it does well? Fifth, if you had a sudden windfall, how would you spend it? If you're given a million dollars, what would you do with it? What's your first thought? Is it buy the truck or support a missionary? Does that make sense? Now, if I'm honest, I fail these questions. Right? Covetousness is, is something that's, that's in all of us. And Jesus says, beware. Never think you're beyond it. It's always lurking. Right? We live in a material world with the material universe and there is a, a sense that we need money and we believe we, we need an abundance of it. And this can lead you to covet. So you beware. Beware 
of the reality of covetousness. Secondly, perceive the foolishness of covetousness. And he told them a parable saying, this is verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now, in this parable, we find a man who is already rich, who is looking at his land, and he sees a bumper crop. And he has this internal conversation. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? What a problem. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So he looks at his bumper crop and he makes some calculations. If he has a bumper crop, then so does everybody else. And the market will be flooded and he won't get the maximum return for his grain. Now, his poor brothers and sisters, they'll have to sell their grain because they don't have things stored up. And so what he'll do is he'll liquidate his current reserves use the money to tear down those barns and build bigger ones, and he can put the whole harvest in there. And at that point in time, he can wait and sell at the top of the market. No wonder this guy's rich. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Oh, he can retire at last. Take a river cruise down the Nile. Go to the Olympic Games. I hear that Rome is beautiful this time of year. You know, he can work tomorrow, or maybe not. He could stay up late drinking wine, eating fine meat and roasted game. And wake up whenever. Oh, this is the life he always wanted. But there's one problem with this plan. But God said, verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have repaired, whose will they be? See, the man had a perfect plan, but there was just one problem. You can't enjoy this abundance of wealth if you don't have a life to live. And God addresses him as what? As fool. What's a fool? Well, this is what a fool does. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. A fool is someone who lives his life like God doesn't exist. He may believe that God exists, but he doesn't live his life like God exists. And this shows itself in four ways. Number one, this wealthy man has an entitled mindset. He's given a surplus. He plans to live it down so he can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. There's no thought of helping the poor, helping his community. He believes that he earned it. He's entitled to this. It belongs to him. In fact, he is rich because of his own special agricultural business genius. He's kind of like Pharaoh. Do you remember Pharaoh? He got the tip from Joseph that there's going to be seven years of, of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And so what does, what does Joseph advise? Build storehouses, store all the grain, and then when everybody else is, is starving, they will sell their land to you for the grain that you already have, and you can consolidate and grow your empire. 
Well, that's what this man does. He uses his wealth to generate more wealth. This wealth belongs to him. He's entitled to it. There was a study done at the University of California, Irvine, where two strangers would meet and play a game of Monopoly. Now, before they would play, they would flip a coin, and the winner was given two privileges. Number one, whenever he passed go, instead of collecting $100, he would collect $200. Secondly, instead of rolling one die, he can roll two. The rich person, the privileged person, I know that's a dangerous word, but work with me, the one who won the coin flip won every time. And when he was interviewed, or she was interviewed, why did you win? No one said it was because of the coin flip. You see, we have a natural proclivity to take credit for everything that we can. And there's this idea, the reason why I have this is because I earned it. I'm entitled to this, right? That's our natural mentality. For most people, other people might have a different outlook on entitlement. In the run-up to the 2012 presidential election, uh, Barack Obama infamously said, somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Right? So there's this idea that if you have more money than somebody else, you're not necessarily entitled to that. And so socialism and communism both come around and just say, if you have more than somebody else, somebody with less is entitled to what you have. And I found this little poem about communism. What is a communist? One who hath yearnings for equal divisions of unequal earnings. Idler, bungler, or both, he is willing to fork out his penny and pocket your shilling. Right? I am entitled to what you have. No, I'm entitled to what I have. Right? This, this whole idea where you have this wealth that is out there, and who's entitled to it? Well, it belongs to me. But who really owns all the wealth? This land produced plentifully for this rich man, right? It wasn't him. It was the land, the land that God gave him. It was God who sent the rains. It is God who invented photosynthesis. Well, what about my strategy and my hard work? Well, in the words of 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Are you smarter than the average bear? Well, God gave that to you. Do you have the ability to move your body with dexterity, can you drive it to work long days? Well, God gave you that ability as well. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? God is responsible for all of it. God created the farmer. He created the land. He created the wealth. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Is that difficult for you to say? That what I have is actually wealth on loan from God. Is that difficult to say? The third trait is isolation. I'm actually, this is the second trait. First one was entitlement. He believes he's entitled to it. Second one is just isolation. Notice how this man dialogues with himself. He says, soul. Now, this would have been striking in that context because normally decisions were made around the dinner table. You'd discuss it with your family, with your friends, with the fellow elders of the city. 
But this man doesn't have someone to bounce ideas off of. He has to talk to himself. See, his wealth was isolating him from the community. And this happens today, right? Sometimes wealthy people go to wealthy restaurants and their poor friends can't keep up with the tab. They might take wealthy vacations, which their poorer friends can't do. And, and there becomes this gradual separation where they build a house in a gated community or, or they have a house somewhere on a mountaintop. Or in this case, they would buy land after land after land and join them all around and be right in the middle of it so they had no community to speak of. This is a man without a community. This is a man who doesn't think about enhancing and helping his community. In contrast, you have Boaz. Remember Boaz from Ruth? He wanted to be a kinsman redeemer. He was a very wealthy man. When he saw a member of his community suffering, he used his wealth to help them. He did not allow his wealth to isolate him from the people God placed in his life. Thirdly, this man is characterized by indulgence. What does he want to do with his money? Relax. Finally, I don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. I don't have to wake up at the crack of dawn to tend to my flocks. To eat. When he dines at a restaurant, he only looks at the left side of the menu, not the right column. Just order what you want. Don't worry about the price. Wouldn't that be nice? Drink. Don't give me a wine served in a can or a box. I want a bottle. A nice old French bottle. And be merry, they can live the good life. Get the box seats, join the country club, drive the Bentley. He earned it. Enjoy it. It belongs to you. And then lastly, there's atheism. There's atheism. Proverbs 38 through 9 gives a balanced view of money when it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Isn't that interesting? If you give me too much money, I might be too full, too full and say, Who is the Lord? I got everything that I need. I mean, when you look at how he's making his plans and has this internal dialogue, listen carefully to 17 through 19. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. In the Greek, my is used four times. I is used eight times. No thought of God. This reminds me of the, the warning that James gives to some wealthy merchants in James 4, 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
Fools never consider the Lord when they make financial decisions. They just don't even think about it. Why has the Lord given me this windfall? What does the Lord want me to do with this abundance? What does the Lord want me to do with this pay raise? Lord, should I invest in this? Should I do this? See, the fool lives like there is no God. And this is foolish because to enjoy wealth, you need two things. One, you need wealth, right? You can't enjoy wealth unless you have wealth. But there's another thing that you need. Life, namely yours. If you are not alive, you cannot enjoy wealth. Now, note, God gave this wealth to this man, and and you can make a case that he came by it honestly. He didn't cheat people out of it. He probably paid his wages. There's nothing to suggest here that he was unethical in the acquisition of his wealth. He had great success. He was bountifully blessed. He was given timely rains, the bumper crop. All of it was, was given to him. But he's a fool because he gave no thought of God. To continue in that passage in James 4.16, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Taking credit, isolating yourself from the community, indulging yourself, is all a form of practical atheism. God gave the wealth, he could take it away. Or he can give you the wealth and take your life away. And then you're really impoverished. So what's the solution to this covetousness? Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself as not rich toward God. The moral of the story is, if you hoard your wealth, you place faith in the abundance, you're rich towards yourself, but not towards God. As we keep on reading in this passage in 12, 33 to 34, Jesus will teach, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The idea is your wealth here on earth will will rot or inflate away. It will disappear. But you can sell it but you can send your wealth ahead to heaven. The words of Augustine, his parable, this is his commentary on the rich man. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor are much safer storerooms than his barns. Isn't that good? He did not realize that the bellies of the poor are much safer storerooms than his barns. So as we kind of sit back and consider, I think there's really three solutions to covetousness. Number one, learn to treasure God or Jesus over yourself. Instead of laying up treasure for yourself, you lay it up towards towards God. Now, when people have a love of money, it's not like they get a bunch of dollar bills and just kiss it and sing to it. You know, they don't throw it up in the air and dance around in it, unless it's like a bar mitzvah. You ever seen those machines? They love the assigned value of money because they believe money will give them what they want. And they believe that by getting what they want, what will they get? If I 
just had that boat. And there's always some noble reason. Then I can relax and get away and pray. If I just had that private jet and I wouldn't have to fly first class anymore, and I could just read my Bible in an airplane and worship God. If I just had that dream vacation, then I could spend some quality time with my family. I don't want much. I just want rest. I just want peace. And I think money's going to get me there. But will it ever get you there? See, the thing is, with greedy people, you can never satisfy a greedy person. Do you know how much money they need? How much will be enough? One more dollar. And that's the same answer all their lives. Money will not deliver. And part of the atheism of money is this belief that you can buy peace, perhaps buy love, buy happiness. If you just had financial freedom, then, then you can be at peace. But that's the belief that the inheritance that matters is the inheritance here on earth, not the inheritance in heaven, right? Jesus actually gives some counterintuitive advice to those who are greedy. He says in Luke 9, 23 to 24, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I mean, that's impoverishment, isn't it? Carrying a cross to death. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. To deny yourself is to dethrone yourself and to pledge your life to Jesus. And if he has your life, if he has your heart, he also has your wallet. He wants total commitment. No one can serve God and money. He will love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other, right? You, you can't have it all. And Jesus came to redeem you, to give you an eternal inheritance. Did you realize that? All of you who named the name of Christ, you're getting far more than a trillion dollars when you die. There is an all-inclusive resort in heaven for you. They'll buy you more happiness than that yacht or the box tickets. But to get this, there is an element of faith, isn't there? Where you have to believe if I deny myself and follow Jesus, I believe that there's more joy to be found in that than the great accumulation of abundance. Paul said in Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. Notice that. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now when he counts the loss of all things, do you think that includes his money? I think so. But Jesus is so precious, so wonderful. Gives him so much hope and so much joy. He's willing to lose it all to gain Christ. He finds more fulfillment in Christ than he does his wallet. In fact, he not only finds more fulfillment in Christ, he finds more fulfillment in serving Christ than money. In Acts 20, 33-35, he, he tells the Ephesian elders, I coveted no one silver or, or gold or apparel. Did, he, did you see this? He just said, I coveted no one silver, gold, or apparel. 
You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He was a giver. He gave to God by giving to the weak. Which brings us to the next point. Not only do you treasure God over yourself, you treasure others over yourself. Right? Certain activities reveal a heart that wants to serve other people. And the way we give to the Lord is not by piling money here and then burning it as some sort of sacrifice to God. God has given us money to give to his people and to give to the community. Now, in 1 Timothy, 5, or 1 Timothy chapter 6, Verse 17, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I want to make a few observations here. Number one, it's not wrong to be rich. He doesn't scold them for being rich. He does say, Don't allow your wealth to make you haughty or to think that you're better than other people. Do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, right? They could leave as quickly as they came. But have hope on, in God who gives you everything, gives you richly, richly provides you with all things to enjoy. There is a place for enjoying what God has given you. We are about to enjoy a feast, are we not? There's going to be turkey. There's going to be various desserts and sides and stuffing. You watching at home, I'm sure it's going to be terrible. You're not missing out on anything. But it's something to enjoy, right? There is something about taking something to enjoy where God's saying, I'm going to give you a gift. I want you to enjoy it. Right? If you give a gift to your children, you don't want them to say, no, I can't take it. You want them to enjoy it because that's what loving parents do. God wants you to enjoy this gift. But then he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So God has given you wealth, but he wants you to be generous with it. He wants you to to give it to those people so that they can rise up and call God blessed. He wants you to invest in your community. There your money is, your heart will be also. I remember talking to some of the college students in our newcomer class and some of the the high school students, and I I, I will tell them, join the church. And I know you guys may not make that much money working at Brahms or wherever, but give what you have. Make it a habit that you will be a lifelong giver, that you will always be invested in kingdom activities. If you're mowing lawns, make that a commitment. Make that a priority. Be a giver. Be generous. Rich people don't have to be the only ones who are generous, right? Everyone can be. Use your wealth to give generously. Be other-centered. Don't see it as yours. See it as something that God has given to you to bless others in various ways. But there's another way that we treasure other people. It's not only by being generous towards them, 
but to make sure that your covetous desire doesn't stand between you and good, healthy relationships. Because isn't that what it was all about here? This man tried to use Jesus to get what he wanted from his brother. When Beck and I got married, our uh, theme verse was Proverbs fifteen seventeen. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox with hatred with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Better to eat four leaves of lettuce than a steak if there's love in one house and strife in the other. And this, and this is just true. Where there's more resources and more money, there's greater temptation for conflict as people want what is mine. People are willing to fight for it, break up families over it. They lust and they do not have, and so they fight and they quarrel. It's covetousness. When Paul ministers to the Corinthian church, some of them were actually dragging other church members into court to get what is mine. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 5 through 7. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But, but Paul is about justice. He took what is mine. And Paul says, who cares? You're getting an inheritance anyway, an eternal one. Why jeopardize that to fight over this one? What does it say when Christians covet? It says to the world that, that Jesus is not worth that much. Unity is a luxury, not a necessity. What will really make me happy, what will really make me content, is not the love of Christ. It's not the hope that transcends all understanding. It is having my fair share. And I don't care what relationships I have to break to get it. I want it. I have one more for you. The cure to covetousness is also contentment. Why does so-and-so have more money than you? Why? Because God gave them more money than you. Are you okay with that? Can you be happy for the success of other people? Why do you have less money than somebody else? Well, ultimately, because... God wanted it to be that way. Can you be content with that? See, you can begrudge what God has given you because it's not as much as somebody else. Or you can be just thankful for what God has given you. Right? Jesus, he wasn't covetous, and he did not allow covetousness to prevent him from, from serving you. In fact, one of my favorite passages about, about Jesus is 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
Jesus left his riches behind. He left heaven, came to earth, and he lived poor, especially when you consider where he came from. And not only did he live poor, he suffered. He suffered to serve other people. He generously gave of his time, his resources. There's nothing that Jesus wouldn't do for people who came to him. He gave them hope. And then he was crucified. And when he was crucified, he made a payment. He paid the ransom for your sins so that those who believe and have hope in him can join him in a new heavens and a new earth, a new inheritance. He impoverished himself so that he could be generous with you. And every time we give, every time we're generous, we act like Christ. We basically say no to this world. We make a statement to Satan that wealth will not satisfy me. My value and what I value does not come from here in the earth. This world cannot control me with wealth. I know that there's greater riches to come in heaven. And every once in a while, we have an occasion like today where we can celebrate the abundance that God has given us. And I think one of the reasons why I love this Thanksgiving meal so much is not just the food, but is who I eat with, my spiritual family, a community. And I know that 100 years from now, We'll say 150, just to make clear that everybody's, you know, in heaven at this point. 150 years from now, we're going to continue the feast and the good times are going to keep on going. And it's a reminder that, that Jesus did not send us out so that we'd be impoverished, but so that we would build a community where we can share together, be generous with one another, prop one another up, and help each other reach the point where we can all dine together on that great day. Today is a down payment made possible by the generosity of Christ and also the generosity of his people. Agreed? The cure to covetousness is to realize that it's not yours. What you have doesn't belong to me. You get mine out of your vocabulary. It's all about this belongs to you, Lord. How do you want me to use the resources that you gave me? How can I lay up treasures in heaven? How can I help other people to do the same? And we have a community that's no longer characterized by covetousness and selfishness. It's characterized by what? By love. And that is the uniting principle behind everything that we do. We love other people by being generous with them, not taking from them, but giving of ourselves and much more. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you grateful. Uh, for this teaching. And Father, I know this is kind of a hard teaching. Um, covetousness is a sin that so easily ensnares us. But I pray that the deception would have been peeled back a little bit today, that we will have the right perception of money and just understand that it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to you. And that we will be purposeful and intentional in how we spend it and how we use it and how we bless you and bless others. And Father, as we are about to partake of this wonderful feast, I pray that we will take it as a gift from you, that you have given us all things to enjoy. 
food and drink and even uh, the fellowship. That there will be free and easy fellowship conversations that will just stir one another to love and good deeds. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.